it, it's all on you, right? So yeah, there's a little bit of stress there, but it's nice to be your own boss. That's the voice of Erica Dupra, owner of Rustic Charm Woodshop. And I'm excited to talk with her right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Erica Dupra, owner of the Ottawa, Ontario furniture company, Rustic Charm Woodshop. Sometimes you have to step away from your passion to realize that it actually is your passion. And that is exactly what Erica did. As you will hear, she started out with a love for building, then went into an office job because it felt safer. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. But that safer option just wasn't right for her. And when she returned to furniture, she realized that that was where her heart and mind wanted to be all along. Follow along as we talk about growing your company in the age of social media, understanding client relationships, why the safe option isn't always the right one, and much more. I had a fantastic time talking with Erica, so let's get right into the episode and hear about her journey in her own words. So back when I was in college, that was in 1996-ish, <laughs> I, um, I was studying professional theater, um, but in the technical and design part of it, so not acting. And um, during that time, like I would be doing carpentry courses and lighting sound like all that type of stuff and i really 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 enjoyed the carpentry part of it where i was building sets and props and that type of thing um at the same time i had an apartment needed furniture to furnish my apartment so being a starving student um i basically went around on garbage days and picked up old wooden furniture that i could find and um, most of it was kind of rough so i would basically sand it, repurpose it in general, like sand it down, put a new stain on, finish, like finish uh, whatever need to be like fixed or whatever on it. And uh, yeah, that's how I pretty much got started in woodworking. Um, once I graduated from college, I kind of took like different paths. So I, I did theater, I, I went to animation, I did fine arts. Then um, I took a job with the federal government and uh, that was, 15 years of, of me working behind a desk and doing a lot of, you know, computer work. And I just started getting bored and it was a safe route for me to take uh, because I, what, you know, like when I was younger, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be an artist or I'm going to work in, in that field. And I just kind of said, you know, it'd be a lot safer for me to 
get like a real job, right? And I say a real job being something that's secure, something that's gonna give me that like nine to five and the paycheck at the end of the week and, and, and the benefits and all that. So I did that for 15 years. And I have to say that I was just kind of getting miserable. It wasn't, it, it wasn't something that was feeding me on a personal level. Like I'm an artistic person and just being kind of like handcuffed to a desk where I'm just, you know, typing away and behind a computer is just, which is not my thing. And yes, it was a, a great job in terms of like, you know, it got me the stability, but on a personal level, it, it kind of destroyed me. So um, back in 2016, uh, I started, I was still working for the federal government and I was just kind of tinkering in my garage, building furniture, like tables and stuff like that for my, for myself. And then I guess word kind of got out at my work and I started making tables for people at work. And then I was like, okay, well, this is kind of fun, you know, like building this furniture stuff. And it wasn't like anything fancy or anything like that, but it was just something I really enjoyed. And then I started really getting into more of the rustic pieces and the, like the farmhouse style um, furniture. So I started putting a lot of focus on that. And at the end of 2019, so November of 2019, I was like, yeah, I think I can do this full time. And it just like, it just felt right. And so I kind of handed in my resignation and started full time woodworking since then. That idea of a corporate job or a job with a paycheck being the safer option is probably true. And it's probably something that a lot of people feel and they struggle with because they know it's that safer job. It's that job where you don't have to rely on yourself 100% of the time. You can rely on somebody else and you can still get paid and you can get paid well. But just because it's the the safer job option doesn't always mean it's the safer mental option. It's the safer personal option. It's the safer thing for you to do because you can burn yourself out working for yourself as a furniture company owner, but you can also burn yourself out working at a job that you you just can't deal with. And that is a reality as well. And But at least working for yourself and doing something that you want and being the the master of your own destiny gives you that satisfaction that working for somebody else at a job that you don't want to do just doesn't give you. Exactly, for sure. Let's go back to the college years when you were taking old pieces of furniture that had had a life and had seen better days and you were fixing them up and, and giving them a new life refurbishing furniture maybe isn't the same as building furniture. Yeah. But putting that aside, it's definitely a great learning experience because you see all this furniture that has lived a life and the things that you are fixing are the things that went bad on that furniture. So you get a real crash course in furniture design, the stability of furniture and how to make the parts of furniture that don't work, work better. Yeah. So when you 
went to build your own furniture, did you think back on what was wrong with the furniture that you originally got? And was that your thought process? I need to make a better piece of furniture and I need to make it not fail in the way that I've seen all these pieces fail? Oh, 100%. I, I would say that I tend to like over, I guess, engineer my stuff to a point where, you know, it's it's solid. Like it's like the joinery is going to be like rock solid where I don't think it would ever fail, really. I mean, knock on wood, I don't know what's going to happen in 50 years from now, but um, no, it's uh, definitely something that, because also I learned how pieces were made and put together by by seeing this like this old furniture, right? So I would, and like you said, I would take whatever failed on that piece and, and, I, and I know I can see it, I can see it now actually. So when I'm applying that to my furniture that I'm doing now, that I'm building now, I know not to do it that way, that I'm gonna do it another way that I'm sure is, is, is almost gonna guarantee a solid, solid piece. Besides learning how to build and how furniture works, from those pieces, from those discarded pieces and making them new again. How else did you learn how to build furniture before you were actually building it for other people? Because it could be a steep learning curve if you just start building stuff and then selling it or even giving it away and you don't have your skills all the way lined up because no matter how nice your first clients might be, if the furniture falls apart, <laughs> they're not going to be many clients after that. So besides the initial dipping your toe into furniture, how else did you learn how to build? Um, to be honest, like YouTube. YouTube uh, has been really, really, really good to, to learn things from from doing from seeing things made with pocket holes and then saying, okay, I don't want to use pocket holes. I want to use, let's say, mortise and tendons instead and just applying it that way. Um, yeah, books too. I've been, you know, there's a few books out there that uh, are really, really, really good for, for how to learn joinery, different types of joinery. And, um, and also, I mean, school. School really taught me how to use all the tools. Um, and my granddad too, uh, when I was younger, I used to watch him tinker in his shop as well. So there's just been a few things like, a, like I guess I guess I can call my granddad my mentor. And um, I just kind of used what I learned from him and then what I learned from, 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 from my education and, and then YouTube. So those three things are, are, are pretty much what, uh, what helps me through, uh, th through ensuring that my furniture is going to be pretty, pretty good quality stuff. It's the modern apprenticeship that you have, that so many people do the same thing where they take a little bit from experiences that they've had building with friends or family or mentors. And then they take a little bit from books and magazines, and then they take a little bit or a lot from social media <laughs> and they learn basically on their own, but also fully immersed with other people. It's a, it's a different way to learn the furniture business than it used to be, but I really feel like that is the direction that 
people are going in. Less and less people are thinking about going into the trades in the old way, in the way of going to a shop and apprenticing and learning from somebody for years and taking those skills that that shop specifically gives you and then using those in your own shop. And I feel like more people are going into the trades by taking all of these different avenues and learning from that way. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, we're pretty lucky. Like when I, when I started, like when I was in college, like the, like when it comes to Instagram and Facebook, I don't even think that was out. And uh, actually, if, if I recall, I think I only started going on the internet, like uh, maybe in 19, what is it, 1998-ish. So even when I was in, in college, when I was taking the professional theater course, uh, there was no internet. Like, so I, I don't know, I don't know what, what I would have done if like internet existed from the get-go, you know, it, like my path might've been completely different. You know, maybe I wouldn't have gone to college. Maybe I would just, you know, maybe I would have I just, you know, continued the way I like forget college, forget school and just, you know, focus on, on social media and on, on, on YouTube and learn from that. You know, it's, it'd be interesting if, if I could go back, that'd be, that'd be kind of fun to, uh, to see. With the rise of social media and with you being on it and, and participating and running a part of your business off of it, yes, word of mouth, yes, local business, but also growing your business and your following on social media, you are now involved in that world. Can you talk on your experience of social media and how it's helping your business and also helping you grow the people that you gain experience from in your community? So I think social media is really, really, really important. Um, like when I first started Instagram, it, it, it was just like, it was hard to get followers. I find like it was hard to move up and it, I would like stay at a certain number of followers for like the longest time. And I would like, I, I researched like, trends and and reached out to to people and just to try to figure out like how to how to work it like how just to figure out like especially instagram like what what is it all about like how does it work like how how do numbers like how do they figure out like the algorithms and everything and honestly i, th I think a lot of it has to do with with just pure luck um yeah, it's just one day you you wake up and next thing you know, like one of your videos went viral and you've increased the number of followers significantly. Um, I, I think it's super important for business because it people see that, okay, you are a person, you're a human being, you you're you're creating things, you're you're putting a lot of effort in, into the pieces that you're making. Um, so when you have clients, like I've had lots of clients actually reach out saying, Hey, I'm following you on Instagram. Um, you know, I'd like to talk to you about potential of working on a project with me. And that's happened quite a few times. And I think like when, when as a company, if you have a following, if, if you're, if you're doing all the engagement with, with your clients, with non-clients too, with other makers in the community, 
it's 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 huge like it's 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 amazing but yeah it's just um there's just there's so much importance behind it that i never thought like when i first started i was like oh, okay it's just a, a place for me to post pictures and you know try to look look professional but no it, it's it's really something that it's more than that it's huge as you professionally move forward from just building things on the side to building things for people that you worked with and then building things for real clients who are in the real world. How did you start marketing yourself from those first couple builds to where you are now? So um, definitely Facebook marketplace. I, I, I hopped on that and put a few ads out. And that did really, really well. Uh, I also started a website and I get quite a bit of um, work from the web website as well. Um, right now, I'm not doing too much on Facebook Marketplace. I, I do sometimes post ads here and there on Instagram or, or on Facebook, but really not, uh, not all that much. It's pretty much now vo uh, word of mouth or, or through my, my website. Speaking about your website, the big problem with custom furniture is a client that is not educated. And I'm not saying book knowledge or street smarts or things like that. I'm saying not very educated in what they want as a piece. When somebody comes to you for custom, the sky's the limit. And if you have a client that can't express what they want, then that can be very hard for the custom furniture maker. And it's our job as furniture company owners to explain, to educate the client on what's out there, what works best for them, and what they should pick as their final piece that works with their style, with their design, in the space that they want and also in their price point. On your website, you make it very clear for somebody who doesn't have an idea of what a custom piece would look like, what their piece could look like. You have a color chart showing all the different stains available. You have a section showing what a piece of wood that is unfinished would look like finished. You have ideas of some of the things that are available to you right now that the client could purchase. How important is it for you to educate your client about what they can have for custom furniture? And besides the website, when you're actually talking to a client, how do you go about explaining to them the different options that they have and making the unlimited amount of options for custom furniture into a easily digestible amount that you can then get a final piece out of? Those are great questions. Um, I've been pretty lucky, actually, when it comes to, uh, to any client, let's say they want a table. Uh, obviously, they know that my style is is rustic. It's a farmhouse style, so they're not going to come to me for a mid-century modern style table because uh, that's just not what I do. Um, so I think right right off the bat, like seeing rustic charm wood shop, that kind of 
I guess, just, just the name alone, it kind of weeds out the people who want like ultra modern furniture. They're gonna be like, oh, this is rustic stuff. I don't want that. So, so that's one thing that I'm, I'm pretty happy about because they just know what to expect. Um, then, so when the client reaches out saying, oh, I'd like to get a table made, and we're just gonna use a table for an example. I'll be like, okay, um, what style table would you like? And then I, I usually send the styles that I, like I send pictures to the client and say, this is what I, you know, what I do or what this the style I, that, that I work in. And, uh, or I say, or, you know, please send me a picture, like an inspiration picture, and we'll see if we can, can work together. So just through sending each other pictures, that's how we initiate, like, I guess, like the very first step. Okay. This is what they want. Then it's from then it's going to be okay. So, all right. I work in pine or, or with like reclaimed wood, or sometimes also like I'm starting to get into now the slabs. So then we start talking about wood and, and of course, when you're talking about wood, that's when we start talking about budget, because we all know that even though the price of pine went up, well, it's nowhere close to like I don't know, walnut, for example. Right. So we figure out the budget and how we can, I guess how I can build it within that budget. So, and I, I always tell them, okay, so pine, it's a softer wood. So expect that, you know, there will be dents and nicks and scratches, you know, along the way, just because of, the, you know, it's a soft wood. And the fact that it is rustic furniture, I mean, it kind of just works anyways. So, you know, the client are, is just, it, you, most of the time the client will always go with like the softer woods with the or with the reclaimed wood so that's that's been pretty good for for um for me in terms of like you know being able to figure out what they want you said you're lucky with the clients that you get because they come to you knowing that you're doing rustic furniture because it's in your name and the the idea being lucky for that it's not really luck because you set yourself up in the name and in what you do to be successful for people coming to you for that specific thing. It's not like you're saying furniture company and then you want to do rustic furniture and people come to you for rustic furniture and you're like, I'm so lucky. I could be, people could be coming for anything. You set yourself up for that. So it's not luck. It's the way you present yourself in the marketplace, the way you show yourself to the world and what you're getting is a result of the way you planned out your business. But I'm sure that there's been times when even though you have a very specific style, people have come to you asking for other things, things that are out of your wheelhouse, things that you don't do. And it's hard for a custom shop sometimes to turn away work because it's all money. And as a furniture builder, you think, oh, I could build that. It's not something that I necessarily want to build or build in general, but it's money on the table. It's something I can do. But you can also get into trouble doing things that are not what you are normally set up to do. So how do you deal with that idea of people coming to you for things that are not something that you usually build and turning those people away? How do you turn away work that's on the table because you've decided it's not good for your business? 
that has happened a few times actually and i mean for me i have no problem recommending referring another woodworker like in ottawa like we don't have tons of woodworkers but there are some really 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 good ones and and i have no issues saying to the client look this is really not my thing but i know the perfect uh, woodworker that can can help you with that and you know it's it's we're such a, a, a tight community that, you know, we appreciate that. We appreciate somebody in, in our community saying, hey, go check her out or go check him out. And just the referrals are, are, are just awesome. They're just awesome. And it's I, like, I don't see people as my competition. I see people as like, you know, it's a community. So for me, if I can, if I can help another woodworker to get something that I don't do, like a project that I don't do, then that makes me super happy. Going back to the idea of design, and you said that you don't do a lot of the work on the computer, you do it drawing by hand, and that's how you showcase the possible designs to the client. That can be time consuming. Yes, doing designs on the computer can also be time consuming, but if there's an edit, you can usually do that pretty quickly. For drawing, it takes more time. And just in general, whether you were doing it as a drawing or on the computer, the design process takes a lot of time. And that's not always something that people take into account in their pricing. When you work on designs, how do you work that into the price of a finished piece? And how do you express the need for getting paid for design work to your clients. I kind of just put that into the whole overall quote for the client. So I know it'll take me, I don't know, an hour, let's say, to to drop a sketch. So I just basically charge an extra hour on the quote. Um, the client, like I don't really tell the client, okay, I'm gonna, it takes an hour for me to, to, to draw out your your, your design. And so I, I don't really itemize it like that on, on the quote. It's just an overall number that I, that I put on. So for your table or for your bench or for your barn door, here's your price. Talking about the final price, that is unfortunately where the line gets drawn between the artistic pursuit of furniture and the business side of the furniture business. And it's a hard line to draw because it's not always a comfortable thing talking with a client about their budget. The client's not always comfortable with it. And sometimes the furniture maker isn't comfortable with it either. But to run a business, you always have to be cognizant of the price and how much money's going out and how much money's coming in. So how have you established your pricing and your pricing model for your custom furniture like i've struggled with that a lot and i would say that i'm still kind of tweaking it right now um so when it comes to pricing i depending on what it is like it like again we'll just use a table like i know how long it's going to take me to build a table so i calculate the amount of hours it will take and what i want to get paid per hour then I calculate all the materials from like the dominoes, if I'm using dominoes, to to the glue, to whatever. I calculate all that in. 
from there, I, and, and obviously the wood as well, from there, I, I then do a markup. And usually the markup is anywhere from, I would say 40 to 60%, depending. And that's pretty much how I come up with my, with my, with my numbers. And how does that conversation go with the client? Because it's all easy to say in your mind or on your computer when you're pricing out a piece of work. It's easy to say, okay, this is how much it's going to cost. But in the real world, in reality, when you're talking with a client, it doesn't always go as smooth as you know, an equal sign on a calculator and saying that's the final number. So how does that conversation usually go between you and the client? Do you have a budget conversation at the beginning, in the middle? Where in the design process and where in the client conversation do you have the first budget conversation and then the final budget conversation? And then if the client gives you pushback, how do you deal with that? Well, clients don't really like to discuss their budgets up front. So at least in, in, with my experience, like it, it hasn't really, you know, I, I've tried it, I've tried it a couple of times and it like saying, well, what's your budget? Right. And they're, they're not very comfortable answering that question. So when I find out what the client wants, I give them a quote and then sometimes they'll be like, oh, okay, sure. We, yeah, let's, let's do it. Or other times they'll be like, okay, it's a little bit, you know, a little bit too high. And then from there, then I say, okay, well, depending on what your budget is, maybe we can work on, you know, the different kind of stains I'm using or the different kind of wood that I'm using. Or, and from, from there, that's when we start to this, like, they kind of open up a little bit more. I've never had a client say, oh yes, my budget is $5,000. So go ahead and make me a table for $5,000. That's that has never happened. So it's, it's kind of always a guessing game really, you know, cause it's, it's either a phone call or it's like the, the conversations are either through phone call or, or through emails or, or texts. So it, you, you can't really, I, I don't see the client's facial reaction or anything like that. Right. So it's just, you just kind of have to, I, I don't, I don't know. I just, I guess you just ask the right questions. You find out exactly what they want. You throw out a price, you throw them a, uh, a price at them and you take it from there, you know, and if, if things are too expensive, well, you know, then you can just kind of see what it is they'd be comfortable, you know, I guess losing in, in either the design aspect or, or the materials aspect, like what's important to them. Right. So I think that's what I, what I do. It's, it's just a guessing game really when it comes to the budgets. It's a guessing game, but after doing it for a while, you kind of know what to guess. You can feel out a client and, and figure out, I'm guessing they want this off the table. I'm guessing they want that off the table. And so once you make that guess and everybody's happy with the pricing, what is starting a project look like? What's, do you take a deposit? Is it a contract? When it goes from a, a maybe to a yes, I'm all in, what does that threshold look like? So I always take a 50% deposit and it's a non-refundable deposit. And I let the client know that, you know, the deposit is because I go out, it's non-refundable because I, you know, actually go out, buy the wood, buy all the materials necessary, especially through COVID. Like it was important that you got your materials because 
there was a shortage on everything, right? So as soon as you you had that, as soon as I got the deposit, I went out and I bought everything. Um, and then when it was time to start the building of that project, well, there was no having to go back to a client and say, oh, okay, it's, it, there's going to be a delay now because I'm, I'm waiting on, on, I don't know, a, a stain to come in and the store told me like it's going to be in, in a month. So, it's, you know, so because I already have everything that, um, that I needed, that was never an issue. So the client was always willing to pay the 50% uh, deposit front. Um, and then with when, once I received the deposit, I, I, I basically write out, it's not really a contract, but more of like, of like an itemized or detailed uh, receipt saying, okay, this is, this is what, um, what you want me to make you. Here's the size, here's the wood, here's the color. You know, and I kind of like itemize it that way. Um, this deposit was received on this date and the completion date will be around this time. And I send that to the client and they, they okay that and that's it. That's how it works. As somebody who started out learning about building furniture by dealing with broken furniture and dealing with furniture that didn't hold up well and furniture that had issues, I can imagine the idea of having your pieces last is very forefront in your mind. And I can see that from your website again, because you have a furniture care section where it shows a basic understanding of how you should treat the furniture that you sell to a client. How else do you make sure your furniture stands the test of time with a client? And more importantly, how do you deal with the fact that sometimes furniture does break, whether it's through faults of construction or through no fault of your own? Sometimes there are issues with furniture. How do you defend against having a client issue like that? Well, when it comes to the materials I use, I really try like to use the best materials, right? Like. If, if, if I can avoid using the, the stains and, and the finishes from the big box stores, I will, you know, uh, it's just clients see, see, see those colors whenever they go visit the big box stores or with whatever they see on, on the internet, like on Pinterest and stuff. So, you know, they'll say, okay, I want, let's say classic gray from Minwax. Okay. So that's the stain that you want, but I always try to like use a better, a better polyurethane or, or, or I don't know, just something that I, I know that I've tried that I've tried on my stuff that I know it's going to last. And I have three dogs and I have, you know, the, the house that I, that I live in is a little bit crazy. Things get knocked over and, and spilled on and everything. And I've never had issues. So I know that because I've tested all this material that or all, all these products that it's, it's going to withstand pretty much in any household. If it can withstand my household, it will withstand anybody's household. Um, so that's what I do when it comes to to making sure that things are going to last for clients, right? Um, when it comes to issues, I take responsibility, even though like wood does some pretty funky stuff sometimes, you know, they're like it's out of your control. But I think if you're if you're just good about it and and you just take responsibility and say, yeah, okay, I, I will do my best to fix it. And if the client wasn't okay with with the with with the fix, well, 
I, I can, I can make a, a new tabletop in no time. So it's, it's okay. You know, it's not, it's not gonna, it's not gonna, gonna break me to make a new tabletop. Um, especially if it's, you know, out of pine, let's say if it was out of like something more expensive, like white oak or walnut, yeah, that would have hurt a little bit. But again, you want to make sure your, your clients are happy because word just gets around people, people can leave like really like nasty negative feedback or you know one one person tells one a friend and then next thing you know like half of ottawa <laughs> doesn't want to deal a rustic charm wood shop you know so I, I just try to make things right for people we've talked a lot about the the business side the actual the numbers side and the contract side and and that part of the business but let's talk a little bit about the the personal side and how you went from a job that was not fulfilling for you on a personal level to building furniture to having your own furniture company looking back on what you've done so far do you feel like that was the right choice do you feel like this is even with all the the hardships that there is working for yourself and for being in the furniture industry, which at times can be an unforgiving industry. Do you feel like that was the right choice that you made? Absolutely. I I would never, never, never go back. Um, I I have. It's funny because like the other day, one of my colleagues came because I, I made a, a little I made a little tabletop uh countertop actually and and she, and she she's like so do you still like it like are, how are you doing and and I was just like it's awesome like I would never never ever go back like being like I work from from home right I have my, my shops at home so like just not having to deal with like traffic and and having to to, to commute to go to work I mean that's just been Oh man, that's been awesome. Really, it's been it's been amazing, um, and and just just being able to to you know make your own decisions and it's it's all on you, right? So yeah, there's a little bit of a stress there, but it's kind of it's nice to be your own boss, you know. It's I don't know, it's 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 been really 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 good, and I I would never never go back. We've all been there where it's a beautiful day and you feel the sun on your face and you go into the shop and every cut you make is perfect. Everything goes exactly according to plan. And those are the days that you feel like this is what you were meant to do and you feel like you're in the exact right place. But along with those good days, there's also hard days. There's days where the sun is not shining. There's days where your (laughs) glue-ups don't go the right way. There's cracked wood. There's supply issues. There's any number of things that can make your business go from loving it to, for lack of a better word, hating it. And when you're your own boss, there's no one to fall back on. There's no one to say, it's not my fault. It's their fault. There's no one to pick you up when you're having a bad time. So you have to do that yourself. On those days, and I'm sorry if I got you down because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean to, but on those days, how do you pick yourself up? How do you make sure you can push through 
just as strongly as on the good days because it doesn't matter how you're feeling, the job still has to get done and it has to go out to the client. Yeah, I mean, th those days are tough. And I think, like, I'm thankful that they don't come by like, all that often, right? They're, they, I've, I haven't experienced too many of those days. Um, when I do, uh, I, I kind of just take a step back or just even walk away and I'll go do something completely different, whether it's go work out in the gym, go take the dogs for a walk, whatever it is. And that kind of helps me think of things and, and, and how I could fix whatever the issue is. And then I just go back and push through it and make sure that, you know, I get the stuff done because ultimately that's, that's the main goal, right? Is, is to finish your piece of furniture and get it out the door. So that's pretty much it. You know, it's just something you just have to take a step back. Sometimes, sometimes it's, you take a, you take a day and just walk away. And then the next day when you come back, you know, you've got it all sorted out. The idea of taking a, a, a step back when things aren't going well, seems like an easy thing to think about, but it's also a very hard thing to do because there is schedules. There are time constraints. There are the physical and the mental aspects of building, but sometimes, and it depends on the time, it depends on the project, but sometimes losing a day ends up saving you in the end. It ends up saving you time. It ends up clearing your brain and clearing your mind and letting you work faster and clearer and get the things done. So I hear what you're saying on that and Again, it depends on the project, but you gotta you gotta treat yourself right when you're working, and you gotta make sure that just like you keep your tools in check, you keep yourself finely tuned to be able to deal with the physical and the mental aspects of owning and building a furniture business. Oh, one hundred percent. Yep. There are people out there who want to have a furniture company. It's a hope. It's a dream. It's an unreachable aspiration, but they're reaching for it and they're trying to make it happen. And they're trying to start their own furniture company. And there's also people who have done it. They've had that dream. They've reached it and they've started and they've opened the doors on their own company and it's going well, but they know it could be doing better. From your experience over the years of doing this, what's some advice that you could share with people out there listening who are looking to be successful in the furniture business? I think that talking to people, like whether it's through social media or people in the community, talking to them and, and, and asking questions and finding out how, how they go about running their business or podcasts like this one, right? It's, I, I find that this really, really helps. Um, when it comes to just, you know, figuring out how much to charge for, for a piece of furniture. I mean, how many YouTube videos are out there now, you know, with everybody's formulas and, and, or like, you know, when it comes to like packaging stuff, like, 
cutting board, for example, like there, like there's so much information out there and there's so many people in the community who are willing to, to share that information. Um, and I think, I think that's great. Like we have such a great community, right? And it's, as, as long as like, as long as, as long as you're comfortable to reach out to people and, and ask them questions. And I, I, I think, you know, that's definitely going to help you now, not to say that everyone's going to going to want to share, you know, what they, what they've learned and everything. I mean, you always have people like that, but for the most part, yeah, our community is, is, is really great for that. We learn so much off of one another, just even looking through people's feeds on, on social media, on Instagram, for example, you, you can learn so much. It comes back for you and for a lot of people to the community, to sharing knowledge and also sharing camaraderie, sharing the idea that we're all in this together and that even though we're doing the same thing, we're not competition, we can all raise each other up and we can all become better if we share what we're going through, our experiences and how we failed or how we were successful doing it. And I want to thank you for doing just that, for sharing your story and sharing your journey and sharing your knowledge with everybody listening. I truly appreciate your time and I wish you all the best of success moving forward. Thank you so much, Ethan. This was so much fun. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.